Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 177, and today's guest is Thomas T.J. Jermaluk, CEO and co-founder of Beyond Identity. T.J. has a legendary background in the tech industry, having founded and run several successful companies through multiple decades. A lot of these successes have been in partnership with another tech legend, that being Jim Clark, the founder of Silicon Graphics, Netscape, and many other companies. Their latest company together is Beyond Identity, which recently announced $30 million in funding. The company is creating a new identity management platform that will hopefully put an end to all those dreaded and not-so-very-secure passwords we all use. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like TJ's foundational years growing up in Hawaii and studying computer science at Virginia Tech, the details on his role at Silicon Graphics as president and CEO, plus examples around how the company's innovative technology was being leveraged, his experience as founding chairman and CEO of At Home Network, where we discuss its merger with Excite, which was laying down the foundation of how consumers access the internet and content, a journey through his other entrepreneurial endeavors as either an operator or investor, including Ibotta, where he is a board member and investor, all the details on Beyond Identity and why this could be one of their biggest companies yet, advice on building out your leadership team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of amazing content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You will find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with TJ. TJ, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. TJ, I'm excited to talk to you because I'm such a tech historian. I love, you know, I, I really got involved in the tech industry in 98 when the internet was just starting to really blossom. So, you know, your background, you know, you've lived through multiple eras of the tech industry. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about it. And, um, you know, I noticed uh, you're, you're a Virginia Tech alum and they did a, a profile on you for one of their magazines. And you made a very, uh, like a visionary quote in a 2001 magazine that said, uh, we've yet to tap technology's potential with communication. The lesson I've learned over and over is the application of computers for people to talk to one another has only just begun. Now, that was 2001. You know, now we're 2020. So when you made that prediction, it was one that was obviously right. It's only come, you know, so, you know, it's come very far since then. So what have you, when you made that prediction, what did you, what do you think has happened that you saw coming and what has surprised you that has happened? Well, the, the explosion of it across the people and the nature of bringing all these different global capabilities back together and people around the world is definitely something that we saw. Even in the first, first year or two, back in 95, 96, with the advent of the first commercial browser with Netscape, I mean, you, you could just see, oh my God, when people are able to get on here and communicate, not just email from academic to academic, but really get on here and have commerce and, and, and share information about themselves and their lives with other people around the world. It's going to fundamentally change uh, society, which it has. I mean, the globalization of, this, of societies has definitely come about from that in just this relatively short period of time. And so it, it, we saw it coming. I mean, nobody specifically knew, oh, Google and Facebook and you know who will be the winners and who will be the losers. But I absolutely could have told you 
that there would be apps like that that became successful. So you saw the apps coming. So what's, what, um, what do you think surprised you that you didn't expect and anything that you would have expected by now that hasn't happened? You know, the, the, I think the, um, the security nature of it, I mean, it's actually one of the reasons why our company has jumped in, but the, 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 the tremendous amount of fraud uh, and, and issues that have grown up as a result of it has been overwhelming. Um, you know, we, we're used to seeing credit card fraud. Um, everybody's used to that in their life. There's a certain amount of that that goes on, but nothing of the scale that has occurred with the advent of internet and connectivity. I mean, I'm talking about people getting hacked, privacy going away, um, bad actors, in, you know, getting involved with the elections of the United States. Yeah. I mean, things on a grand scale, on a, on a global uh, scale, I think, I don't think any of us saw that coming to that level. I think we would have expected some low-level issues like with credit cards, but nothing like what has happened. So I think that's been a bit of a surprise. And you really see the explosion uh, of cybersecurity sorts of companies coming, you know, trying to come to the, the fore on the white hat side of the equation to keep up with this arms race that's going on. Um, so I think that that's been a bit of a surprise and it's something that clearly needs to be fundamentally addressed. This, you're not gonna solve this with band-aids, you know, these, these cybersecurity threats on the internet are, are, are fundamental. If left uh, to their own devices, they would be fatal. Um, so it's definitely something that needs attention. Yeah. And we're going to talk about your latest company, Beyond Identity, which, uh, I, you know, it just has a great premise, like getting rid of passwords. It just seems like a, a very logical thing that should be happening. So we're going to get into the weeds of that. But first, let's let's rewind the clock about uh, your background. So where did, did you grow up in Hawaii? And, and what were you like as a child? Yes, yes, I grew up in Hawaii. I was uh, very fortunate that I became uh, entranced with um, this kind of technology very early on. I was about 12 or 13 years old. I was in high school and a math professor who um, was starting to do some work with early computers. And I'm talking, this is in 1968, 69. There was one computer on the island in Hawaii uh, from the Hawaii Sugar Planters Association. And he and I rented time on it in the middle of the night. So I was an original hacker, an original wow, that's awesome. night owl at 12 or 13. I had a cot there in the, in the uh, computer room and I would be programming it all night long with, uh, with him working on, working on computer programs. Very cool. And then, so you went on to Virginia Tech yeah. and you studied computer science there, which was a relatively new major at the time. Yes, I did. It's a great engineering school. Uh, so I was, I was lucky to, to be accepted there and I went to computer science and engineering and, and got a great uh, background and they had a tremendous program where I was able to do a lot of independent research as I was specifically interested in uh, some brand new computer architecture work that was going on that became uh, RISC and UNIX. Um, so I, I, I got recruited out of there to work for Bell Laboratories, which at the time was the premier research institution in the U.S., maybe in the world. Um, and so I got to work with some unbelievably uh, smart and uh, wonderful people there. 
yeah, like Bell Labs, I mean, they created so many amazing, amazing products, you know, technology back in the day, right? Yeah. So I got to work on, as I said, on risk and on Unix and things that became very valuable skill sets once AT&T got broken up by the Justice Department and Bell Labs went away. A whole bunch of us sort of rolled out west to Silicon Valley and ended up starting a number of great companies out there. So there was quite a Bell Labs mafia going on. Yeah, like the original mafia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then what did you do after that? Was it HP after that or... Uh, I did some consulting work for HP, but my first startup was uh, Silicon Graphics. Right. Okay. Uh, that's where I met my partner, Jim Clark. Um, he was a, had been a professor at Stanford and took some grad students and started this company. And uh, I got introduced to him and we kind of turned a 30 minute interview into a five hour whiteboard chalk talk uh, with each other on computer architectures. And, uh, and we, we, we knew we had to work together. So we, I, I joined him and started building their computer systems. And we've been together 35 years, if you can believe that. That's amazing. And so, so Silicon Graphics, so for people that aren't familiar with the company, like you, what were you actually creating then? So we were the first 3D graphics uh, computing company. So we were able to, to take a, an actual object uh, and, and put it on the screen and and view it in 3D and move it around and manipulate it and understand it. So the simplest examples would be uh, for a design of a car or an airplane. You can actually draw a part or the entire plane on the, on a computer screen and move it around and look at it, put it in a wind tunnel and see how the wind looked going over it or that sort of thing. We also did uh, special effects for motion pictures like Jurassic Park and The Mask and Terminator, uh, shows like that. We did medical imaging, like the first time you could view x-rays on a computer screen instead of having to see them on a, on a piece of film uh, with a light behind it. Uh, so all kinds of applications like that, that, uh, that really, that was a great time. Uh, the company just took off because n- nobody had ever been able to visualize these things before. And then, so you were... Uh, president and CEO of Silicon Graphics, and I was doing my, um, you know, my research as I always do to prepare for these podcasts. And there was a great uh, video that I found on YouTube that you were part of the like the key key announcement of the Nintendo sixty four when that was just getting launched. So they did a big you know press briefing, and yeah. they, they they brought you in via video to uh, to help promote it. Yeah, that was a very cool project we got to do. They they came to us and wanted to make a a giant leap forward in, in video games. At the time, they'd been competing with Sega. Um, this was before others were even in the market, and they really wanted to make a big step ahead. Uh, so they invested uh, in a project with us, and we took our, our uh, computer graphics and miniaturized it into this little Nintendo 64 box. This is actually a super cool project. And I got to introduce this thing at this conference they had down in uh, Southern California, it was a big, big deal, thousands of people there and uh, a lot of teenage boys because that's who was playing video games back then. And I remember I got this standing ovation, which was abnormal for a tech guy. Um, and, and they all came up afterwards and they're like, oh, would, would you play me in this game or this game or this game? I was like, you know, I, I designed the system, but I don't actually know how to play the video games. Like, I never was a, a gamer myself. 
um, they had this, uh, this one kid that worked for them, Nintendo did, who had designed Super Mario and all of their big hit games. And he, of course, was the rock star of the gaming side, but he couldn't tell you anything about how the machine was built and vice versa. I didn't know anything about how to play the game, but I could tell you everything about how we drew, uh, you know, cool images on the screen. So you mentioned Jim Clark, right? So iconic name in the tech industry. So at that point in time, Jim went off to go do something really important. And then you went off to do something really important. So I think it's kind of because you guys are kind of like back together or have been together for all these years. It'd be kind of interesting just, you know, talk about kind of what he was doing at the same time you were building uh, at home. Right. So while we were um, still at Silicon Graphics, we'd done a project down in uh, Orlando called the Orlando Project for Time Warner, where we built a set-top box and hooked everybody up in Orlando to this ability to order pizza and stamps and talk to each other. So a precursor of the internet. And Jim, of course, had seen that and, you know, had an understanding of that. When he ran into Mark Andreessen and uh, the project that they were doing, him and his, his buddies at the university out there, um, he immediately got that, you know, and uh, started Netscape, uh, and, which became, you know, the really going from email and HTML to a real browser was what opened it up to the, to the every person, um, as opposed to techies and, and academia. So hugely important. Um, about the same time, about a year later, uh, I helped start a company called At Home Network, where we um, basically, we were the first broadband uh, implementation of the internet. We used cable lines, which is still the dominant way of delivering uh, broadband high-speed internet today. And that's what opened up the ability to move it into doing video and real-time audio and all of those things as, as opposed to static uh, kind of websites, which is where browsers had existed. So really both those technologies were super important in, in the explosion of the internet that, that went on from there. And then, like, I mean, it was such a high-flying time. And I do remember when they announced the merger with Excite and it became Excite at Home. So you were instrumental in making that happen. Yeah, so that was, um, it was an interesting time. We, uh, you know, we clearly had a vision of what we wanted the homepage to be. Very multimedia, very, you know, video and audio and things going on. And, you know, that, that, that took advantage of that broadband. Uh, unfortunately, about that time, uh, AT&T got involved and, and in true big company fashion, had no vision whatsoever for where this whole thing was going to go and still thought in terms of dial-up and DSL, and they, they killed that whole company in that effort, which was a real shame. Uh, but of course, those technologies went on to, to great success in, in other people's uh, websites. Right, because the, the whole Excite was your, your browser, right? It was your homepage with all the different content and then your email. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it never really had a chance to get off the ground with, the, uh, with AT&T deciding they, they wanted to go in a different direction. They, wanted to be, they didn't want to be in media, which is kind of funny because, of course, in the, in the following years, they became in media. Right. All these companies realized that the merger of media and communications was, in fact, exactly where they wanted to be. Um, and we had seen that, and that's where we were going. Time Warner did it with AOL and um, on and on with Disney with, with others. But um, 
you know, the, at the time they, they didn't have the vision to, to see that. It's too bad. It would have been one of the most important companies in the world today. That is interesting. Yeah. Like Comcast owns NBC yeah. Universal and yeah. yeah Liberty, uh, you know, communication and media, they, they, they go together and, uh, People realize DirecTV is a communication and a media project, you know. Imagine you would have been able to do things like Netflix does today if you'd owned both sides of that equation. It was just, it was so short-sighted of them. What I found was interesting is the Excite URL is still alive today. Like you can actually go to Excite.com and see that it has like a very old picturesque MindSpark, which is part of IAC that ended up purchasing it. Uh-huh. So it's still an active URL. And they still run it. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. I had no idea. So uh, after uh, Excited at Home, what did you do next? I, I joined uh, Flander Perkins, KP. Uh, they had funded uh, Netscape and, and, and at Home uh, and some other companies. We had, Jim and I had done some other companies that, that I wasn't running at the time, but um, Shutterfly, my CFO, Healthy on WebMD, you know, we, we were doing these other companies that we were both on the board of, uh, and KP was invested in some of them. They were in my CFO and they were in Healthy on WebMD, for example. So they knew me well, and, and I wanted to take some time out of the, off of being a CEO, a full-time CEO, because I was always quite busy with that. And they said, well, come be a general partner with us. And uh, so I did that. I joined them and for the next four or five years, I uh, I worked as a VC with uh, Kleiner. Got it. And then after that, you continued to build companies. So what were some of the companies after KP? Oh gosh, we um, we did a variety of things. I uh, you know I still had at that time I'd started so many companies with KP that I had probably twenty different companies <laughs> and um, that I was on the board of. And it takes years to sort of work your way off of those, you know, some of them get bought, some of them don't make it, some of them go public, whatever it might be. Uh, so I was still doing a number of those for the next five years. At the same time, Jim and I moved to um, Florida and actually started a company down there that built um, high rises. <laughs> um, so that was a bit of a different uh, thing, um, kind of an opportunistic, but I, I hired, I, I, I had about 500 employees and built uh, three big high-rise commercial towers, the tallest one in Miami at the time. And uh, then I sold that to the employees. Um, and then we started doing some other uh, kinds of um, technology companies. Like we have one in, uh, in Denver called Ibotta. Uh, they do electronic cashback systems. I'm, uh, my wife is a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of the app too, but my wife was the one that was like, when you go to the store, you need to use this. I'm like, okay. And it, it, it was a good experience. It, like usually those apps become more of a nuisance than what they're worth, but they're that, that well-designed product, simple to use. Thanks. Yeah. I, that's a great management team. They do a, a really good job. Uh, they're, they're doing quite well. Um, they're based in Denver. We did another one in New York. Uh, called Mike.com. It was in the digital um, media online space, trying to be kind of a smart online uh, New York Times for millennial, you know, sort of a thing. And uh, and they hit a tough patch when all digital media did. We sold that um, uh, off, but I put a lot of time and effort into that one. Um, we had another company in Florida in the uh, 
security space, but for sort of home automation, lighting, security, uh, smart home sort of an application. And, uh, and then we have this company, uh, the Beyond Identity, that we uh, started in this cybersecurity space. Perfect segue. Let's talk about what you're up to now with Beyond Identity, which um, probably never realized the problem that passwords would become, you know, starting back, you know, going back to the Net, Netscape era. Yeah, we definitely dropped the ball on that one. Um, you know, at the time we had created a technology at Netscape. So Tahir uh, Elgamal and Paul Coker, who worked for Jim at Netscape, uh, created SSL and X509 certificates as a mechanism for websites to talk to each other. So when Amazon goes to talk to PayPal to pay for your purchase or Visa, they use a very secure certificate-based system that's been around since then and is well-proven, well-understood. Um, but at the time, we didn't have the understanding of how to extend that to users. So it was complicated enough to figure out how to do it for websites. And we had to have these third-party certificate authorities, um, VeriSign and Symantec, all these people who came along and, and would sell certificates to websites and manage them. They would take care of their security, if you will, and they would manage them for them. You know, what started as hundreds and then thousands and then millions and then hundreds of millions of these certificates. So it was quite a complicated job. So nobody knew how to do it for billions of people. And honestly, we punted and just said, yeah, use a web, use a password. <laughs> and at the time, passwords could be anything. I mean, you could use, you know, one, two, three or cat, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> there weren't any rules about how many letters or uppercase or lowercase or strong or weak or whatever. And so it, it, it started this really poor culture of people not choosing wisely about their passwords. And that's, that created this opportunity for the black hat hacking community to come in and start taking advantage of that. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, that has now been around since 1995, a long time. And, uh, and the result is that there is a tremendous amount, hundreds of billions of dollars of fraud that's been perpetrated on American businesses and consumers, privacy issues, money issues. Uh, as a result of that technology. But now there is uh, a solution to that. Just go back and take that same technology that we use to go from website to website and let you do it, just as if you're a peer of all those websites. Now you're in control. You're your own certificate authority. You're your own security or your own ID. Just, just on the same basis of all those other websites are, using all the same industry standard tools certificates and SSL, TLS now, all the same things. So that's the beauty of this approach is we didn't have to boil the ocean, recreate the world. We were able to take everything that's being used today and just figure out how to cleverly extend it so that you can use it now. You personally have that control of your identity. Now, what, what will uh, apps or companies need to do to like adopt this way of authenticating users? That's the nice thing, almost nothing. Wow, okay. Almost nothing. So it's, it's a drop in and play technology. Um, we go into their site and literally in, in 15 minutes and an hour, you have it all installed and, and going because they don't change anything. You don't change your applications. 
You don't change anything about your IT infrastructure. You don't change what network tools you use. You don't change any of that. You just keep using everything that you're using today. So we put a little piece of software on your computer, on your phone, on your iPad, whatever you're interacting with, that operates like it's your certificate authority, just like web servers have their own today. It just joins the network that exists, just with all the full security that all the websites have today. Only you're in control of it. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing that the idea is one that, that once you hear about it, it's kind of like the first time somebody heard about a wheel. You hear about it and you go, oh yeah, of course you should. That's how you should get around. But until somebody thought of it, it wasn't obvious. And then, and then it's completely obvious. Well, that, that's how this works. Is like, once we thought of it, everybody we talked to, including like Taher and Paul, they were like, oh my God, how did I not think of this? Like, how did nobody think of this? It's like, that's exactly how you should do it. Just take it out and give it to the user. And that's why I was wondering, I'm like, how is this not already available? Just, it is shocking. You know, it's crazy, right? And and that's why it's going to catch on so fast is because literally there's nothing to explain. When you go in and you talk to an IT department and you tell them, okay, yeah, this is what we're doing. They go, oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have to change anything. Just do that. It's, uh, it's, It's really... It's really kind of intriguing and clever that way. Because the, the way people have solved the, tried to solve the password problems or th- apps like LastPass and just more password manager applications, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the fact that it says it's a password manager means A, you still have a password. Right. <laughs> B, now you have a password with them on top of all the other passwords you already had. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a Band-Aid. Um, you know, I can understand... If you didn't think of what we're doing, why you would do it that way, try and say, okay, somehow you got to trust us. We'll manage. If you have 50 passwords, we'll put them in a vault to manage that for you. And then we'll give you yet another password that you have to use to get to us. The problem is, of course, they keep getting hacked. All those passwords keep getting out because they exist. See, we can't get hacked because we don't have any passwords. There are no passwords. Mm -hmm. So there's no more target for the the black hat hackers, there's no target because there aren't any passwords for them to come in and get a hold of. They're gone, right? So it's that's the problem that password managers had and always will have is that they're keeping those things on your behalf. Therefore, you have to trust them and they're a target. Now, what's the plan for the business? Like, is it like, are you looking for mass adoption first before monetization or is that part of the plan coming out of the gate at all? Like how do you plan on building the business around it? So we're going after the enterprise market first businesses um, where employees have to access resources on their own internal web. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great market. It's very easy for us to monetize it departments totally understand the liability and the risk they have from passwords, credentials, stuffing, phishing, centralized servers, so it's very easy for them to understand, oh, I can pay you a couple bucks per user per month and get away from all of this liability. You know, where do I sign? Um, our ultimate goal is the consumer. You know, I don't know how many applications do you have on your phone today? 40, 50, more? At least, yeah. Yeah. 
and you either use one password across all of them, or you have to figure out how to use 50 passwords on all of them. Either way, that's a liability. So our ultimate goal is you, that we install it on your phone, on your computer, computer on your iPad, and that you're able to get to all of those applications without having one password. Not one for us, not one for any of them, but you pick up your phone, it looks at your face, you're on your phone, and from that minute, you get to any app you want without ever typing a, a password in. Got it, yeah. And so this will um, replace all OAuth and you know signing in with Google, Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever. It, it uses OAuth, of course. That's still a technology that, you know, useful underneath kind of a technology. But sign in with Google or sign in with Apple or sign in with Facebook. Here's the problem, okay? So sign in with Facebook. You think they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart? Or do you think they're doing it because they want you sticky and they want to have that data about when you signed in and what app did you go to? Mm -hmm. Right? So right. Apple, when you go to the Apple store and you want to put an app in the Apple store, who has to approve that? Apple. Right. Yeah. So you can put what apps you Apple wants to put in that store, not necessarily what apps you want. So if you use sign in with Apple, they'll let you sign in to whatever app they want you to sign in in. But what if you want to go to an app that they don't want you to sign in? Mm -hmm. Then how do you use sign in with Apple? So there's an inherent conflict of interest in using these kind of technologies with somebody who has another motive. Google wants to track your purchases so they can sell that data to SEO searches. Facebook wants the data. Apple wants you tied to their applications. Each one of those has some other conflict of interest about why they want you to use their technology. We don't have any conflict of interest. More importantly, we don't see your password because you don't have a password, so we're not keeping any data. We keep no data about you, and we keep no password about you, and we don't have some other business in collecting your data and selling it or tying you to our ecosystem. We're a truly neutral party. You can trust us because we have nothing of yours that you have to trust us for. So you uh, recently announced 30 million Series A from KDT and NEA. Uh, like what's, what's the current size of the company in terms of employees, you know, growth plans ahead in terms of hiring? Yeah, we have about 45 employees right now and we're hiring as fast as we can. Um, we're definitely in ramp up mode. Uh, we're hiring engineers, salespeople, marketing uh, people. We're getting great candidate flow. I mean, we hired some really great people while we were in stealth mode. But now that we're sort of out in the public eye and people can go on the website and learn more about us, it's increased the candidate flow even, even more. Uh, so we're very happy with how that's going uh, today. And why did you decide to, to build a company in New York versus uh, West Coast? Uh, Jim and I were both on, uh, in New York. Uh, we're on the East Coast nowadays. Okay. Um, obviously, with me choosing to run this one, you know, I haven't run one of ours in quite a while. Um, I figured if I was ever going to do one again, this is the one you want to do. I mean, this is a big one. This is a big idea, big market, uh, great technology, so super fun. Uh, so it enticed me to want to do it, which meant I, I wanted to be where it was. And, uh, and so that's why we put it in New York. You can recruit better in New York than almost anywhere except, you know, Silicon Valley obviously is also very special, but that's a tough market to recruit in uh, out there as well with all the, the numbers of companies out there. 
So, so what's it like raising capital when you, when uh, TJ and Jim Clark who's the chairman of beyond identity kind of like, Hey, we've got this company that we're starting. Do you want to invest? <laughs> no, it's funny because we didn't really even raise capital. I mean, both these partners, um, NEA was an investor with us in our very first company in Silicon Graphics. It was one of their first wow. investments as a firm. Interesting. They were 40 okay. years old and that was over 35 years ago. So they've been with us a long, long time. Um, oh. You know, uh, Forrest Basket worked with us at Silicon Graphics and he's our sponsor there and he's been a partner there for a long time. Uh, Scott, their managing partner, has been a partner of ours for a long time, uh, many, many of them. So that was just a natural for us is uh, we casually mentioned it to Forrest. He totally got it right away. And he's like, yeah, yeah, count us in. You know, it was six or nine months later that we actually did it all. But he was like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I want in. Mm-hmm. And then KDT uh, invested in Ibotta. Uh, okay. They put $175 million in Ibotta. Um, and uh, they're a great partner for Ibotta. And they're actually, in a funny way, they're, they're the reason for our marketing change to go after enterprise. We were, we were having breakfast with them at Jim's uh, place up in, in New York. And this was right after the Ibotta investment. And uh, a couple of their guys were saying, hey, what else are you working on? Just being curious, what else you got going on? Because um, we really like you know, Ibotta and everything. And, and we happen to mention this one, although at the time we were working on it, the idea at least for the consumer market. And they started getting really excited. And they were like, no, 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 you, gotta, you, you, you don't understand. We have 140,000 employees and this would be perfect. This really addresses a need that we have. So we flew down there, we got in, we understood how their architecture worked and how their employees worked. We said, yeah, yeah, this could be. And I, and I went and spent a couple of months talking to people in the enterprise field and quickly realized that we should flip it around and go after that market first. So they really get a lot of credit for kind of opening our eyes to that opportunity. Uh, and given that we had just had a, a good experience with them at, um, at uh, Ibotta, and they agreed to be our very first customer for the Beyond Identity, and we said, okay, yeah, because they were like, hey, can we invest too? We said, okay, yeah you'll have to be partners with NEA because we already told them they could be in. So they were like, yeah, yeah, they, they love each other. So they will be co-leads. So it came about, we never talked to a single partner <laughs> and literally it just, when, when it was time to sort of do the round, we came together, we did a term sheet in a week. We did the whole thing in a week and just closed the whole deal and said, okay, let's go. So they're great partners, you know, despite everything going on with, coronavirus and all, they were like, no, we're long-term investors. We're kind of, trust us, we're in. So, so why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep building companies? You know, it's just, it's really exciting. I, you know, some people, I, I don't have the ability. I, I really enjoy the arts. I enjoy music. Uh, my wife and I enjoy music. We enjoy museums. We enjoy art. Uh, she's an artist. Uh, I don't have that creative gene i can enjoy it but i couldn't create it um and but i appreciate it and this is my field where i get to express that you know in the engineering side and the beauty of how you come up with these incredibly creative solutions and be able to bring them to a market and change how people how people work how end their lives eventually 
that's that's sort of how I get my creative juices flowing in life. And uh, and if you hire a really fun team, so you're, you know, when you go into work, you're the people you're there, you're, you're interested in what they're doing. Like every day, I just wander around. Hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? What's going? You know, and you you learn a little something every day, and you get a chance to make a decision about something that matters every day. When you only have forty people and you're all scrambling, you got to make decisions quick, and uh, and make them and make them count, and and that's exciting. I mean, that's that's you know, there's people that like. This stage, that's that's one of what I'm at. I could never do what Jack Welch did at GE with 150,000 people or whatever. I appreciate that. I give them a tremendous amount of credit, but this is this is the part where I really enjoy it. So, when you're building a company, and uh, you know different stages of companies require people with different skill sets typically. So, when you're just kind of first coming out of the starting gate and have to build out that initial leadership team what advice would you give to founders on you know the type of people to bring in during that time frame for a company you know you really have to to allow yourself to be self-aware about your culture lots of different cultures can be successful but you need to have one <laughs> you know you can't have it be chaos of lots of different kinds of cultures um give you a good example when when steve jobs brought in John Scully. Uh, he, he, his culture, Steve's personal culture, and Scully's could not have been farther apart. Scully, Pepsi, corporate, different thing. And Steve went, got his own building, got his own team, wouldn't talk to anybody else at Apple, ran a pirate flag up in front of his building as an obvious sign of, hey, now all the rest of you get lost, right? Yeah. That's a mixed, mismatch of culture. Wasn't going to work. Now, when Steve got fired and then it failed and he came back, he ran the whole company. Then it was all his culture. And that could work. He, he did insanely great things, right? So any culture, you can make any culture be successful if you're self-aware of it and you, and you hire people and you're transparent, you're upfront, you're, you let people know what it is they're getting into, right? Um, there's, there's penguin cultures and there's elephant cultures, you know, penguins. There's lots of penguins around, so when one gets sick, the other ones get together and peck it to death. Right? That's how they survive. Interesting. But there's not very many elephants, so when they get sick, they all gather around and support it. Right? They're very difficult. All kinds of ways can work. Be upfront, acknowledge it, write it down, celebrate it, share it, hire people who want to be a part of it, tell them what they're getting into, and, and, and then build it from there. I think that's really important. Don't just let it happen. You know, make it happen. What about uh, being a board member? Like, what, um, what, like, what makes a great board member? Uh, it's so much harder than being a CEO. Be a great <laughs> board member. To be a board member is easy. You just show up. You know, you collect your paycheck once every quarter. You sit there quiet for two hours and you leave, right? But being a great board member, you have to figure out how to how to win friends through influence, right? You gotta. You got to get to know the CEO, get to know the management team, get to know the other board members, figure out how to, how to work the system and, and get your ideas across and, and understand that sometimes they're not going to want your input. Other times they are. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. When you're a CEO, ultimately you make the decision. So I can get all the input I want, 
But they know that if at the end of the day I look at them and I go, mm, blue or red? No, blue. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's blue. <laughs> so in some ways, being a CEO is actually easier than being a great, I found, than being a great board member. I was on a lot of boards, 20 different boards. Some of them I was probably a great board member. Some of them I probably wasn't because I couldn't quite figure out the, the style or the culture or the way to, to get through. It was always a great disappointment to me if I really, really knew they should do something a certain way, but I couldn't get that. I couldn't get it across. For whatever reason, I just wasn't able to get people to my point of view. I was always bitterly disappointed about that. Well, uh, one more question. So you mentioned uh, Steve Jobs. So did you ever have to um, work with them, like work with Apple and Steve Jobs during your time on the, on the West Coast? Yeah, I did. While I was um, doing work with HP in the very early days when he was doing the original work on the, on the Mac, Macintosh, um, I did some consulting and, and worked with him on, on some projects and uh, quite an interesting uh, character. We kept in touch. Obviously, we were both, um, you know, running, running companies at the same time. So I worked with him when he bought Pixar. Um, they were a big customer of ours with selling graphics. And we worked very closely together on a bunch of movie projects and some technology products. Uh, when he started uh, Mock, uh, I had had a lot of experience. Um, Actually, some of the people that worked for him there had used to work for me on the Unix side. So I did a lot of uh, a lot of work with him off and on. Well, TJ, thanks so much for taking the time to just share your background, all the great companies that you've uh, been a part of, and obviously what you guys are up to at Beyond Identity. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.